0: Go back to your constituencies and prepare for a brand new podcast, How to Win an Election. Strike up the band!
1: probably be on how to lose an election as I worked for John Major and then for William Hague.
2: I used to own a Nick Clegg finger puppet and then my children played with it and it it fell apart.
3: I just sounded too shouty and over-emotional and slightly ridiculous as I said, you've underestimated me because I'm a fighter not a quitter. It still haunts me slightly. That's enough blowing our own trumpet.
0: I'm Matt Chorley. Every Tuesday, I'll be joined by three of the sharpest, funniest and best-connected election strategists who know a thing or two about winning and
3: losing. Well, I'm Peter Mandelson and I'm a fighter, not a quitter. As Neil Kinnock's Director of Communications in the 1980s, I hauled down the red flag and put up the red rose in its place and helped drag Labour back from the brink. And with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, I helped create new Labour, um, having been elected as a, as a Member of Parliament in 1992. And after that, I became a Cabinet Minister, a European Commissioner, and then I returned as First Secretary of State to help bulk up Gordon Brown's premiership. That worked very well indeed, and it didn't, but only because Polly's Lib Dems got into bed with Danny's Tories. And Labour hasn't won an election since, but they're working on it.
1: I'm Daniel Finkelstein. I've probably got greater expertise in losing elections than in winning them. I worked for John Major and for William Hague, but I also helped build the arguments for the 2010 victory of David Cameron and for the 2015 majority. Nowadays, my advice can be found in my Times column.
2: I'm Polly McKenzie. I started on the 2005 general election working for Ed Davey. I helped write the 2010 and the 2015 manifestos, one of which catapulted us into government and the other not so much. I'm not sure anyone has read it since. I helped write the Rose Garden speech that Nick Clegg gave uh, as the incoming deputy prime minister. These days, I helped to run a university, the University of the Arts London.
0: right. so the big question, if we're talking about how to win an election, let's start with when will that election be? It's obviously in the gift of the Prime Minister now. Let's start with you, Danny. You know, you've advised Tory leaders over the years, all the way back to, to John Major when he was in government. If you were advising Rishi Sunak right now, when would you
1: suggest that he call that election? came to the conclusion in 1997 that the one thing we could have done to reduce the size of the defeat was hold the election a bit earlier the longer it went on the more aggravated people became with the government the stronger the time for a change feeling was I think the greater the defeat it might not have made that much difference in the end but I think it's one of the things looking back that one might have done differently so I guess with that in mind I, if I was Rishi Sunak, would think, well, the chances of of victory are not very great. And the longer we go on, if time for a change is one of Labour's biggest, strongest cards, the harder it's going to get. And therefore, uh, I would think about whether to go earlier in the late spring, May or June. If you do that, you've got some chance that the economy will start to look like it's on the right track. But this is all because if I were Rishi Sunak, I'd be running a Britain's on the right track election, whereas he's committed himself rather oddly, I think, to a time for a change election. So... I'm not sure my advice suits the electoral strategy he's now following, but I, I think that's the advice I'd give. I would say that this, though. It's very difficult for a prime minister who's far behind, who thinks they're going to lose an, uh, an election, if they call it, ever to call the election whatever the strategic advantages m- might be in, in theory.
3: I'm uh, informed by 1997, rather like Danny, and uh, I saw the major government, unravelling as it went to the wire with one ghastly new piece of scandal bursting into the public domain after another. Uh, I mean, you know, sleaze, sleaze, sleaze dominated politics. People have largely forgotten this. They thought that it was just Labour's extraordinary sort of brilliance that sort of, you know, swept all before it. But actually what was being swept up was a a conservative government that just looked as if it was sort of decaying before people's eyes, and yet it went on and on and on, right down to the wire. So I have been saying to anyone who's asked me that uh, I would expect Sunak to go for a May election uh, next year uh, on the same day as the local government elections. Rather than have a whole series of dreadful results, you know, conservative councillors sort of incinerated across the country?
2: Well, firstly, let's just remind ourselves that it's totally nuts that we have this system where the Prime Minister gets to call the general election when he or she feels like it. Briefly, we had a fixed term parliaments act. And I know that that, you know, everybody, the fashionable thing to say is that that was a disaster. But the idea of just having an election on a regular and fixed timetable that can't be gamed by politicians strikes me as a fundamentally good one because actually the the game that the politician is then forced into does start to kind of tease into these dynamics about like oh are they a bit desperate are they a bit eager and and i just think that that creates this weird story that Reinforces a sense that politicians, oh, they're just they're tactical and they're out for themselves. It'd be much better if we just had a regular, fixed system. I did, I did of agree elections. with that, Polly,
1: but what did, didn't you think that the problem? What put me off it was the problem we then got into when Labour didn't want a general election and (laughs) Boris Johnson didn't have a majority in Parliament for his Brexit proposals and we really got completely stuck and I thought well I'm not sure how compatible it is with the parliamentary system where the Prime Minister has to have the confidence of the House because it means that they can't go to the country when they've sort of need to renew that confidence of the House and they need to renew the House and so I'd been You know, I've been pretty resolute about it. I've written in favour of it and I thought it was a good idea. And I really got put off by that. Did that not shake your faith in it?
2: Well, of course, uh, when I get to change all the rules of everything, uh, we can also have a proportional system and, you know, and I guess more of a healthy sense that a parliament has to find a way to sort its problems out. And that, that was what was... Amazing, I guess the political culture through Brexit, where everybody went crazy.
3: I, I just, I think at the end of the day, Danny's got a point, and that is the public have got to decide this. And you know, if there's, if the parties really, you know, can't build a majority amongst themselves, and if they can't decide something as important about how we're going to implement uh, Brexit, then perhaps you really do have to take things back to the public. And that flexibility of our unwritten constitution, where we're not dropped into this sort of legislative straitjacket of fixed parliaments and all the rest, does seem to work.
2: I mean, it didn't work. So it, if it's a weird well, kind it of, we uh, had
3: to change the change the law to enable people to hold, a, you know, call an election.
2: Well, that's how the, we got
3: out of it in the end, by abandoning this fixed-term parliament.
2: Well, actually, because um, Joe Swinson for the Lib Dems and the SNP suddenly decided that it was going to be in their interests for us to have an election. Uh, it turns out they were wrong. Yeah, and that that's was a brilliant
3: idea. Her and,
2: <laughs> her, her and
3: Jeremy Corbyn walked straight into it, it and yeah. ended up in their largest yeah. electoral but, but, elephant, but, but, elephant pit. <laughs> so that's, you a, it.
2: But, but, so th- that's then what's kind of interesting to me, if we think about when will Rishi Sunak call this election, is they will be looking forensically and obsessively at polling, basically waiting for something to show up for some turn of turn of events that will give them a better prospect. But what we saw in 2019 and also 2017 is that those pre-election polls, which put Theresa May massively above Jeremy Corbyn, and which put the Lib Dems on you know who knows what percentage, are because of because of the Brexit debate actually kind of somehow fall to pieces through a general election campaign. Somehow the narrative of those last two election campaigns has just transformed people's expectations. The
3: story of 2017 is very simple. I mean, Theresa May called an election and then didn't show up.
0: Right, right, right. Let's not get bogged down in 2017. We've got plenty of time for that in the coming weeks. Uh, Let's look ahead instead. What advice do Labour need to heed? Peter, for you, what's the biggest mistake that Keir is making right now?
3: I think he has rectified the mistake he has been making uh, in that he hasn't realised the centrality of policy in politics and campaigning. You know, it's become rather fashionable, and I take my share of the blame for this, uh, it's become rather fashionable to think that you know, what counts are sort of gimmicky communications and lots of spin and photo opportunities and sound bites. I, I have actually never held that view. Uh, I was responsible for Labour's 1987 campaign, the first one I, in which I was campaign director, the Red Rose campaign. And it was sort of very glitzy and very smart and just very impressive and a complete failure. Uh, I mean, it was described at the time uh, as uh, Labour's brilliant election defeat uh, by private eye. And so it was because it was a spray paint election. I couldn't do anything more or with or to the Labour Party than sort of re-spray it. It still remained the sort of old jalopy that it was, but it looked smarter and, and nicer. And what I learned... In that election is that unless your policies are right, unless you've you know carved off and removed all the sort of vote losing policies and the barnacles stuck to the bottom of your boat, and you're actually making a you know a hopeful and realistic offer that people want to vote for, you're not going to make the progress. And we hadn't put that in place, by the way, by 1992. I mean, it was certainly turbocharged and there you know up in lights by 1997
2: my métier is really policy and the details but you you have to understand as a, as a policy person like that people are not going to be worrying about like the forensic little details of what you're going to legislate for and exactly whether this or that but if you haven't got the details then i think people can get that sense that you're just all mouth and no trousers
1: yeah I, oddly, i basically think Keir Starmer ha- hasn't got much further in telling people who he is or what he stands for, but I think that's fine, um, electorally, in electoral strategy. So I think Rishi Sunak is on the right point in trying to say about Keir Starmer, you know, they'll say one thing one minute, then it'll change his mind to something else, and we don't really know who he is, he doesn't know who he is. I think that is correct Attack because I think it's essentially true. But if I was Keir Starmer, I basically knew nothing about it. I think all he has to do in this election is make sure people think he's reassuring, reasonably safe, not going to make alarming big changes that, people, that scare people, move the country, you know, in, in a better direction and not be a Tory and not be the I, Conservative. I think he's got to do a
3: bit more than that, Danny. I, I think he's got to raise people's
1: hopes and make people feel a bit more optimistic. I'm not, this is not, um, this is sort of a sober judgment. I'm not attacking him for this. I'm just thinking, if I were advising him, would I think I had a candidate there who was, whose best chance is to go out and enthuse people? Probably not, I think, but I think he could be very good at reassuring people and hasn't done at all yeah. badly doing that. I
3: think he can and has to do something a bit more than that. I think he's got to get onto people's wavelength. What one really, Big issue for the Labour Party, and I did feel this in Liverpool. Many of them, I'm afraid, really do feel that the election's been won. And that is so poisonous. It is so corrosive uh, for a party. Why Uh, is it corrosive? Well, I tell you why. (laughs) I tell you why, because it it leads you into traps and mistakes. It makes you feel, well, actually, it doesn't matter if we, you know, just make ourselves sort of half better or half appealing or put this policy half right. You know, let's sort of split the difference between appealing to the public and keeping the party happy.
0: Right, that's enough for now. Hit subscribe right now so you don't miss the first full episode when it drops on Tuesday, October the thirty first. And send your questions, comments, and complaints, either just an email or a voice note, to how to win at the dot uk. That's our brand new email address. How to win at the times dot co uk. And join Peter Mandelson, Polly McKenzie, Daniel Finkelstein, and me, Matt Jolly, every Tuesday so that together we all learn. How to win an election.